another guy who written who's just written a biography of John Keel that I talked to. Oh, really? God, like, is it published? Yes, it is now published. It, uh, his name is Brent Rains. He's been uh, a UFO um, researcher for oh god, like thirty years. He's uh, close friends with uh, Greg Little, who wrote an amazing book called People of the Web. I'm going to get that. I'll go on. I'll go to online and order it right away. I, I love Keel, of course, and uh, I'd want to know more about him. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by. You know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we? Uh Greetings, my friends. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. And then I say, hi, Jeff, are you there? <laughs> I am indeed here. I'm going to read the intro that's on, well, truncated uh, of what's on your site. Uh, so people sort of get an idea who you are. Most people listening to this show will know who you are and have probably read at least as much or more, most likely more of your work than I have. Because as I told you, I've gotten through most of, half of, some of, about five of your books. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah. Uh, because I'm trying to read so many things at once. You do the same thing, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, Jeffrey J. Kripal holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University. He's the author of Comparing Religions, Mutants and Mystics, Science Fiction, Superhero Comics, and the Paranormal, Authors of the Impossible, the Paranormal and the Sacred, um, Esalen, America and the Religion of No Religion, um, The Serpent's Gift, Gnostic Reflections on the Study of Religion, Roads to Excess, Palaces of Wisdom, Eroticism and Reflexivity in the Study of Mysticism, and Kali's Child, which one of my friends wanted me to ask you about. 
the mystical and the erotic and life teachings of Ramakrishna. His present areas of writing and research include the articulation of a new comparativism within the study of religion that will put, quote, the impossible, unquote, back on the table again. A, a heavy theme of what I want to talk about with you today. A robust, yeah, a robust and even conversation between the sciences and the humanities and the mapping of an emergent mythology or super story within paranormal communities and individual visionaries. Hello, Jeff. It's been a long time. I've been waiting to talk to you. Hi, Greg. It's it's good to talk to you. We were just together, of course. Yeah. Um, I, I, for the purposes of being informal in this show, I will call you Jeff instead of Dr. Kripal. Uh, we were at... Um, the Pacific Graduate Institute, where you were giving a uh, classes and teaching and a seminar. What was that like? And what what, what was the theme? Um, so that's my third third visit to Pacifica, actually, and I like that intellectual community a lot. They they come out of a Jungian sort of Campbellian lineage, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the lectures well basically were on what you were just reading there. This this super story that I think is developing in our culture around paranormal currents, essentially. So I lectured on um, UFOs and biological gods and things like levitation and the physics of the physics of UFOs. So it was a kind of a potpourri of stuff, but it was all designed to kind of push us, push us into or push us beyond Looking at these things is just sort of ephemera that don't don't matter and aren't important. Yeah, a lot of these uh, weird things have been pushed aside um, in the last hundred years. In fact, uh, reading uh, the flip and listening to you lecture and some of your other books, I got uh, inspired to do a uh, talk about how things are changing, how the, the the conversation between the humanities and science are changing, and that seems like a uh, theme that you're pursuing right now is that correct yeah i'm of course really concerned about that as someone who works in the humanities um and who wants to have a conversation with scientists but but i want to have a conversation i don't i don't want to just mimic what the sciences are doing yeah because the sciences are doing a certain thing that the humanities can't do and the humanities are doing something that science can't do but i think they're in some ways, they're both reaching for the same thing or some sort of synthesis in, able, uh, in order to be able to continue, especially the science part of it, continue yeah. into the future. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the project. or the, the the project, most abstractly put, is what you call the excluded middle. It's It's that space where, you know, it's clearly subjective, but it's also clearly objective, and it's somehow both and neither at the same time, and and that's that's where I think the future of knowledge is is in that that middle, that middle liminal space that we we can't quite name or grasp yet. Yeah, the uh, uh, intersection between the two before the twentieth century, and especially before the nineteenth century, there there was not that division that we see right now, and people don't really realize that. No, I mean, of course, there wasn't. I mean, professional science really arose definitively in the 18th and 19th century and before that it you know it came under the rubric of, of natural philosophy or the philosophy of nature and and it and the human there wasn't really a division between the humanities and the sciences that came really in the last 100 150 years or so so it's a fairly recent split actually 
Yeah, but uh, the funny thing is, up into the late 19th, early 20th, um, probably around 1920 or so is when that split was irrevocably, I would say, was irrevocably um, in place. Uh, Before that, there was, I think, the last vestige of that might have been the Society for Psychical Research, which had a lot of professional scientists as members. Yeah. Yeah, I you know, I wrote this book called Authors of the Impossible and it was it was really an attempt to kind of rethink the history of the study of religion, which is my own area and which is closely related to anthropology and and psychology and history and one of the things I noticed working on that project was that most of all, most of the founders that we look back to with some reverence in the late 19th early 20th century were Virtually all fascinated by psychical or paranormal or occult phenomena. Sometimes they were obsessed with them. And over the course of the 20th century, those interests become more and more camouflaged, more and more censored, more and more denied. And so by the time you get to the end of the, certainly the 20th, early 21st century, you know, it's it's hard to imagine intellectuals interested in these things even though they still were and were often writing things about them kind of on the side so you i think you do see a gradual kind of suppression of of the conversation over the 20th century mm-hmm. yeah and as it gets worse it becomes you know an object for ridicule and then as it becomes an object for ridicule it becomes the the realm of um it turns into a wild west yeah, and of course, enters popular culture, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of gets made fun of there too. So I, I you know, I, I understand it. I, I get what happened, but yeah. I, I think if we're going to get anywhere, we have to kind of go back, and we have to go back to go forward, as it were. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we can back up a little bit. My friend Susan um, St. Clair, she wanted to know what inspired you to pursue religious studies, specifically um, oh. the uh, experience with Kali from your book, Collie's Child. Yeah. Well, that's, wow, that's a long story. Um, <laughs> Take as much time as you like. <laughs> so is Susan's question, what inspired me to pursue the study of religion, or what was the genesis of the Kali experience in Calcutta? Both. Both. Okay. Um, we don't have to belabor it. You can take as long or as little as you as you like. I'm sure you've yeah, talked about this the, in hundreds of other interviews, but yeah, I no, wanted reason, people that are listening to kind of get an idea of who you are. The reason I'm hesitating is I'm afraid many of your listeners will have heard this story, and, and I don't I don't want them to be bored. But I'll, I'll okay, tell we'll we'll I'll we'll get over it quickly. quickly. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in a mostly German. Um, ethically German farming community in Nebraska. And the town was about a third Catholic, about a third Lutheran, and about a third everything else Protestant. And I grew up in the Catholic third. And when puberty hit, um, I mysteriously became super, super pious. Like I was uber pious. I was like, Hmm. I was really pious. (laughs) Uh, And, um, I also became deeply anorexic about mm. the same time. And these two things, of course, were related because I, a lot of my piety was I wanted to be a saint and I wanted to have these, these abilities and these, you know, this sort of sanctity that I was reading in the lives of the saints. And I knew it had something to do with 
uh, celibacy and uh, ascetic practices. And so I started to fast. And um, by fasting, I mean I barely ate at all. And um, I was an athlete before that, and this – all of this fasting behavior, which became anorexia, became very obsessive, pretty much destroyed me um, athletically and was really kind of turning me into a skeleton. Um, my parents, of course, were really concerned, and they had me meet with a number of priests, one of whom was a Benedictine monk whom my dad had grown up with as a kid. And this monk very impressed me very much, and so I eventually followed him into the monastic seminary. I wanted to be a monk. And uh, I was, that's where I did my undergraduate training. I was spent four years at a monastic seminary college, mostly studying religion, philosophy, and history. Mm-hmm. And during that time, the monks um, put me into psychoanalysis because they were very concerned about my eating behaviors. Yeah, And um, psychoanalysis, believe it or not, totally cured me. I I oh. had an I had an amazing experience with Freud and psychoanalysis and dream interpretation and we don't need to get into all of that but I mean it sure. basically had to do with sexuality and the 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 appearance of sexuality in puberty and my attempt to suppress it which was successful by the way. I successfully crushed my sexuality for, wow. about, for about 8 years. Uh, to the point where I had none or had no conscious experience of it. Um, but as a result, became a re- anorexic and was essentially dying, uh, starving to death. And the uh, psychoanalysis showed me this link between my fasting behavior, my piety, mm-hmm. and my sexuality. And once I realized that, it was just, it was va- basically an instant cure, Greg. I, I, I realized immediately what it was happening and I was really, really hungry and I just started <laughs> to eat and I ate for about seven months straight, <laughs> gained about 70 pounds and had never been anorexic since. So, so that's sort of the origin story. Now behind right. that or, origin story is the realization that was really quite dramatic that my own religious behavior, my own religious beliefs as sincere and as intense as they were, were driven by forces of which I was completely unaware and that were sexual in nature. And I was shocked by that. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, shocked in an intellectual sense now, not not in an emotional sense. Right. I you mean, weren't outraged. You were kind of, it was kind of realization more like. I was just like, holy crap, that, that is amazing, you know? <laughs> I was so blown away by that. So the whole idea of the the unconscious was just this total intellectual revelation to me. Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, what was happening was I, a number of my friends were essentially killing themselves. Um, there were three, one, two, three attempt, three suicides in a few a couple years there. Uh, a monk hung himself in the barn. Um, a seminarian blew his head off. And my best friend swallowed a bottle of sleeping pills, and John came back from this suicide attempt. And I just asked him, "I, John, why, why did you do that?" And so you got to remember, this is the early '80s. Okay, we're not talking about now. We're talking about 
30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, well, Jeff, I'm gay. And I, th- I, I couldn't live with it anymore. Mm. And, you know, I essentially wanted to remove the contradiction. And, um, and then he said to me, Jeff, don't you realize almost everyone here is gay? And, um, I actually didn't know that. Mm. But when he said it, it just, it rang true. And I started to think about all of the kind of funny, casual experiences that I had witnessed or seen. And it just made more sense than I can get into right now. I mean, it was, it was this was at the seminary. Yeah. This was a gay, this was a Catholic seminary. Mm-hmm. It was humorously convincing. Yeah. And, and again, I wasn't, there was zero moral outrage, Greg. It was just like, Hmm. Wow, that is so interesting. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting to me because the teaching of the church then as it is now is profoundly homophobic and right. really really quite awful when it comes to sexual orientation. But on the inside of the church, it was this loving, kind of flamboyantly gay subculture that was just kind of obvious and um <laughs> i was like wow how is that how, what is going on here yeah you know? what's, what is all this subtext that i never knew about yeah and and so and i i was straight and so i started to look around in catholicism for some kind of mystical tradition or spirituality that that was heterosexual and of course i couldn't find one <laughs> Uh, there wasn't so there's any. no room made for it there's no there's nothing yeah. in Catholicism for a heterosexual male mystical approach to the divine because ah, course, yes yeah for that you need a goddess and there are no goddesses in Catholicism I mean people will mention Mary but a she's your mother and B she's a virgin so that doesn't work that's, <laughs> that's, that's pretty in, in Freudian terms. That's pretty castrating. Yeah, and um, <laughs> so you can find, of course, male mystics within the Catholic tradition that were clearly moving in this direction, but they were all declared heretical or heterodox. So you mm-hmm. know, someone like William Blake or someone like Teilhard de Chardin or someone like Jacob Bilma, you know, yeah. all were developing these really robust. Yeah, they were going in that direction, and they were they were suppressed, or you know, uh, or they they never, of course, censored, were, or they yeah, couldn't they do anything never, during their lives. Yeah, and so I just that was so interesting to me. I was like, wow, heterosexual male heterosexuality is heretical. It's it's heterodox, and and kind of sublimated homoeroticism or homosexuality is orthodox. And of course, that's the opposite of what people assume, mm-hmm. but. It's in fact true. It's the case if you just start thinking about it. And um, so th- that's what drew me to Hinduism is I, I, I wonder if this is true everywhere or if this is just true in Christianity or Catholicism. So I, I went to a tradition that was filled with goddesses and, and had robust kind of uh, mystical sexual traditions, in this case tantric traditions, mm-hmm. And I, and I wanted to see how it would play out there. And ironically, what I found was that, yes, in Hinduism, there are these heterosexual traditions that we call tantric, but they're, they're, 
they're very heterodox. Um, we might, you know, we might talk about them in glowing terms in the West, but when you live in India, they're they're a bit dicey. It, they hmm. kind of they kind of feel like black magic, or no, they're just or, as repressed as the uh, what you were talking about the Catholic Church. It sounds. I'm like. not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure they're just as repressed. Well, in a, in a way, that. yeah. And so I ended up looking at this famous saint named Ramakrishna, and what I found ironically was that he he was sort of embedded in one of these heterosexual traditions, but he himself was uh, homoerotically inclined again, like like all of my or most of my seminarian friends. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's actually what got me into the study of religion. Were this is the answer to long answer to your friend's short question. What got me into the study of religion was sexual suffering and people dying and anorexia mm -hmm. and psychoanalysis and me trying to figure out why my own religious tradition was actually worked in the exact opposite way that it claimed to work on the outside. And that's, that's what, that's what got me in. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the Kali experience that Susan's talking about, which, which I've written about in many contexts, that occurred in Calcutta while I was working on this dissertation. And that was, you know, ostensibly a very, um, well, it was very sexual. Uh, it involved basically me waking up one night paralyzed and some kind of presence or being coming out of my body or out of the room or wherever it came from and engaging me in, first in a very sexual way, but then in a, in a kind of spiritually transcendent way to the point where I had a, a kind of classical body experience. Right. Um, now there wasn't, there were, there weren't any real visual components to that. I mean, I, since I was on my back, uh, and paralyzed, um, I associated it with Kali because if you look at the icons of Kali and, Oh, right, right. She's literally standing on a male who's on his back and doesn't move. Mm -hmm. And so to this day, I think that iconography is probably based on similar kinds of experiences. experiences. Yeah. Um, but, of course, I didn't see her. I mean, in some sense, I felt her because it was – it's what the tradition would call Shakti. I mean, it was – it was a it was an experience of energy or power in a very physical way. It was this, we're not talking about some symbolic dream or vision or something subtle. I mean, it felt like I was being electrocuted, right. and I in fact thought I was. That was kind of my first assumption: was <laughs> uh, I'm dead? You know, I'm going to die. This this is this is bad. Um, and then I thought I was having a heart attack. And then the energy just sort of imploded into my heart, and I found myself floating above my body at the floating, you know, uh, up. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's and that, Greg. I mean, to kind of bring it down or bring it back to where I think our conversation might go is right. That experience. Um, really is what makes me so sympathetic to the abduction literature. Yeah. I, <laughs> Everybody you know, listening is thinking that right while you were describing your experience. Yeah. yeah. And, but what's so interesting is, so that experience made perfect sense within the symbols and icons and, and teachings actually of Shakta Tantra in, 
in in West Bengal where I was living. I I I didn't know anything about the abduction literature. I didn't care about it. Mm-hmm. I did I didn't reference it. Um, but it, I certainly referenced all of the Kali and Tantric traditions because though that was the context in which this experience actually made perfect sense. Um, so and you know to, to, to kind of bring it even closer to home. What's looking back on it? What's so interesting to me is a lot of the Kali's you see are about three or four feet tall, and you know she has these huge almond eyes. Mm-hmm. I mean, she she looks like an alien. And, That's true. Um, yeah. And now, not always. There there are in fact hundreds, if not thousands, of versions of Kali, and they kind of split into a kind of beneficent blue form and a more scary dangerous black form right um but you know they're very alien like mm-hmm. um in many cases so anyway that's that's a long answer to susan's <laughs> short personification of an other in, in, in yeah. uh, that happens across cultures uh when you were speaking at um pacifica you said you're involved in a quest for meaning as opposed to a quest for mechanism um, yeah, and you were talking, I think, specifically about paranormal and and the UFO communities. Yeah, and uh, I think that quest for meaning is is very important, and it's been routinely ignored by most because of the overarching uh, power of science and and that model. But um, this quest for meaning, I think, is is quite important. So, what did you mean by that? Well, you know, so my my entry into this particular inquiry that we're sort of in now is sitting around uh, a room at Esalen for 15 or 20 years, mostly with scientists talking about paranormal things and listening to them talk and talk and talk about the search for mechanisms, the search for causes. Mm -hmm. And, and I was always the humanist in the room who was raising my hand and saying, (laughs) what cause, you know, what, what mechanism? I, what I hear is a story. I don't. I don't see Newton here. I I see narratives, or I'm listening to narratives. I'm listening to stories, and these stories are functioning in very powerful ways in the lives of the people who are remembering them and telling them. Clearly, this is about meaning, you know. And there, there may be mechanisms involved. There may be causes. I'm not denying that. But that question is never going to get us to the heart of what's going on here. Um, the the questions that's going to get us to the heart of this is what does this mean? What is this about? What are the intentions? What is what's being signaled or symbolized right. in these these events? And I don't, of course, claim to know that. But so th- and that basically what I was saying was, guys, look, I. I know that science can make refrigerators and iPhones. That's great. <laughs> but that's not those methods are not going to get us to where we want to go here. That that's the wrong method for addressing these questions. And that's kind of been my complaint or my position since then is I'm not anti-science. I mean, I depend on science and technology like everyone else. I love what science and technology do. Of course. But that, do- that doesn't mean it can do everything. And that, that doesn't mean that a phenomena that cannot be studied by the scientific method isn't real. 
And that's the mistake we keep making over and over and over again. When someone says, well, that's not scientific, what they really mean is that's not real. And what they should mean is that cannot be studied with the scientific method. Yeah, or at least the way the scientific method is classically applied. Well, yeah, and I think the scientific method is classically applied is the scientific method. And I think it works just fine when you're talking about objects in space mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. can measure and manipulate and predict their behavior. But it doesn't work at all when you're talking about human experiences and forms right. of consciousness that are not, not even objective. Yeah, but when you talk to these scientists, well, it, you know what it sounds like is they're a bunch of hammers looking for nails to to, to pound in, but they they don't realize that there's other tools to be able to deal well, with, with nails. And you're have they have they made that crossover or that realization as you? Oh talked yeah, to no, the scientists I sat with for twenty years, these were really sophisticated people, and a lot of them saw that very clearly and had no trouble with that observation. Mm-hmm. But I, I find that a lot of people in the public do have that problem. They do, they do naively conflate what can be studied with science with what, with what is real. <laughs> and they also conflate what cannot be studied with science with what is not real. And I just think that's devastating. I think I don't I don't think that's a harmless mistake. I think it's devastating. And I think it's what turns our world into this meaningless, completely physical mm-hmm. um, flatland that we then become depressed in and you know, you can see all the symptoms around us. I mean it's it's it can get really bad. So I think we I think this is a moral and a spiritual problem and not just, you know, a scientific or a philosophical one. You're trying to reconcile those things as sort of trying to heal that so that people can start seeing that um, there are just because something isn't um, doesn't have the uh, mechanism doesn't mean that it's not important. It it, it doesn't mean it's not real. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, I think that's the deeper argument here, Greg. You know, because something can be important and still not be real. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can have a dream about, you know, a unicorn, and it can be really important to me, but that doesn't mean unicorns are real, you know. so Just because it's not real doesn't mean it's not important. (laughs) Right. Or at least real in the sense that most people think of real. Right, but I'm saying something more radical. I'm saying just because something cannot be studied with the scientific method does not mean that it is not real. Mm-hmm. And I mean real. I mean existing in some fundamental sense. And um, so, I, you know, that's, that's the argument. And I, I, because I think all of these things really do come down to the question of what we consider to be real or unreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get in that middle space that, you know, you've written so much about where, Things seem to be real and unreal at the same time, and you know this is the place of the hyphen that Charles Fort used to write about. <laughs> yes, yeah. What's in what's in the that that hyphen is is the most important part of the uh, the contraction, whatever you say the, of the words around it. The the hyphen is where it's all happening, <laughs> right? Because the hyphen 
not only acknowledges that there's a paradox here, but it connects the two realms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned Charles Fort, (laughs) and you talked about him uh, at uh, Pacifica, and you kind of rhapsodize about Fort a little bit. What is it that attracted you to Fort in the first place? How did you find out about him? Oh, that's funny, actually. It's a funny story. So (laughs) the the folklorist David Hufford, this was years ago. It's probably 10 years. No, this was, yeah, 10 years ago. Yeah, I know I know his name. Yeah, David. David Hufford. He's a folklorist who wrote this wonderful book called The Terror That Comes in the Night. It's it's on Oh sleep paralysis. yeah, yeah, I have that book. Okay, that's how I know who, who he is. Yeah. yeah, no, David's fantastic. And uh anyway, David and I were always exchanging he says to me at one point, he says, You know what, Jeff, you you sound a lot like Charles Fort. <laughs> and and I and I said who the hell is Charles Fort? You know, I never heard of this guy. He says, well, you need to. You need to go and read Charles Fort. So I went and bought, you know, the big omnibus that everybody had, the right. uh, Dover, the green Dover edition with the mm-hmm. falling fishes on yep, it. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I just started reading. I read the whole thing, and I just laughed all the way through it. Oh, it's and a riot. It's a total hoot. And I, But I was also blown away by it. Mm-hmm. Just, Philosophically, I thought this guy is this guy is a he's a comedian, but he's also really smart and mm-hmm. he's playing with basic ideas about reality here. And and so when I wrote the book Authors of the Impossible, I you know I dedicated a whole chapter study to Ford and really I identified him as probably the most significant intellectual founder of this particular inquiry. Um, you know, around the paranormal. Um, right. So I, I just, I think the world of Ford, I just, I, I think he was, I think some of his ideas were crazy and completely wrong. Uh, but other, I think he realized that too. (laughs) Yeah. He he was so funny. And then what happened was, um, after Arthur's of the impossible comes out, I get this email from the New York public library and it, it's a curator there, and the curator says to me, you know, um, hey, uh, I read your uh, book, and, you know, we have all of Ford's papers here. Yeah, the like Tiffany Thayer collection. Yeah, would you like to come see them? And I'm like, uh, yeah, sure. So I spent a day, I just had a day, so I spent a day sitting in that gorgeous reading room, you know, looking at, you know, Charles's notes and slips of paper which were which were great actually. Um, I did that too. Yeah, it's did kind you? of a pilgrimage. And and then I, then uh, Greg, I went up to Albany and I made a pilgrimage to his gravestone. grave. Yeah, uh, yeah, I went there and I went through a lot of those notes and I noticed. Did you notice this? He writes autobiographical notes in those notes. He only, not only has the notes about what he's researching: Fall of Fish, Burma, eighteen sixty two, October. But he also starts writing things like, I can't believe that uh, Lowe was published. It's a horrible book. I, I should never have written it. Stuff like that. Very <laughs> depressing things, at least what I saw. Uh, somebody yeah. could do a whole book just on his autobiographical notes in his greater corpus of notes that he, he did for the uh, for all of his books. Yeah. Did you yeah. see any of those? I did, actually. The one that comes to my mind is he would like be reading a, a newspaper article, say, on a snake skin. Uh-huh. You know, so, some article in a newspaper about a snake skin. And then he would look down on his floor and he saw this 
penny wrapper. You know those old those old ways that banks used to wrap pennies. Yes. And when you and when you pull it off, it it, it yeah, it's like the, the snakeskin. Yeah, and then someone had stepped on it many times, so it also looked like it had scales on it. And he <laughs> saw this. He saw this lying on the floor as he's reading this article, and he picks it up. And he puts it in his notes. You know? so <laughs> there, there, there. I had, I had the uh, cutout newspaper article about snakes or snake skins, and then I had the penny wrapper snake skin that that Fort picked up off the floor. So he was constantly scanning, you know, the environment for these synchronicities, and I, I think he, that's how he wrote. Actually, I think he was like, just kind of like. Uh, going wherever they told him to go, basically. Um, so I think those books were written paranormally mm. um, in some in some fashion. I, I know there was a lot of work and labor in them, too, but yeah. there's something about them. And if you read, particularly if you read um, uh, Wild Talents, <laughs> there's this fantastic section where he decides... That one well, I haven't I read. If the if these people have the ability to knock things off the wall, then I do too. And he goes around trying to mentally knock pictures <laughs> off. <laughs> it's really funny, actually. Oh, to I me, that's like it. somebody running around who's never seen a basketball trying to shoot baskets from half the court away. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's what he was doing. You could probably do it once in a while, but it's really difficult. Yeah. I didn't. I I haven't read that. I didn't know that he was doing that. Yeah. So what he did was he he was the embodiment of what you were just talking about about five minutes ago. Yeah. He you know he talked about what he he called it my philosophy of the hyphen. Mm. That's what he called it. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's in that's in one of the uh, the three books. I don't know where. Um, I've never read the whole thing. I've jumped around through. I think I read all of. Um, uh, the first one, but the the other ones I've sort of jumped around through. Well, Low Low actually, in my opinion, is his worst book. Ah, uh, well, in his opinion too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, there's some crazy, crazy astro- uh, astronomy stuff in there. The Book of the Damned is beautiful. And right, that's what I meant. Wild Talents, which is his last book, that was published literally as he was dying. Mm-hmm. I I think is in some ways his best book. It's um. It's basically about paranormally gifted people, particularly particularly girls. He has this wonderful section on bubblegum chewing girls blowing up navy ships. And stuff. <laughs> it's, it's all a, it's all a thought experiment. But I I, uh, I you know at that point I was raising two little girls and uh, there was this show called the Powerpuff Girls on yes on yeah. the Cartoon Network and it and they Ford basically stopped, did that. Yeah, Ford stuff was just pure Powerpuff Girl stuff, you know, uh, 80 years ago. Um, it was great. Did he inspire Authors of the Impossible, make you go look for others like Valet and the others you talk about in the he book? Really, he really did. I mean, Authors of the Impossible has four essays in it. The first one's on Frederick Myers, which I'm sure your listeners all know. Mm-hmm. The, the second one's Charles Fort. The third one was Jacques Valet. And the fourth one was Bertrand Meust which very few people know because he only wrote, writes in French, or in, in French. but um, I just think he's brilliant. I just think Bertrand is amazing. And he's still, Jacques and Bertrand are still alive. Um, 
Myers and Ford, of course, are not. So I wanted to get four people that kind of span the 20, 19th and 20th centuries. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I had never heard of Charles Ford, and that was part of part of my reason for writing Authors of the Impossible was that, so that book came out in 2010. So at that point, I'd been studying mystical literature for 30 years, and I was we we never read or discussed anything involving a miracle or an anomalous event you know mysticism was really kind of this purified category about some kind of state of consciousness but right. god god forbid we talked about an aura or a levitation or a bilocation or something uh even though that stuff's everywhere in mystical literature and the example i always give is if you've ever studied religion in college or graduate school, you know, you've you've all read William James's varieties of religious experience. Yes, but what you're never told is that James was an avid psychical researcher. Oh, that's that right. Spent much of his life sitting with mediums and psychics, and so right there is the problem. We we embrace William James as long as he's a psychologist or a pragmatist or something, but we don't read him when he goes and sits with a medium or, or, or attends a seance, which, of course, he did all the time. Mm. Um, so that was kind of the problem I set out to explain in Authors of the Impossible, is why is it that our the people who founded our disciplines were all fascinated by this, but now we can't even talk about it, and we're not even told about it. It's just like not there. Do you think the study of religion like opens the door for this kind of study as opposed to any other kind of um, humanities uh, discipline? The truth is, is that most of the study of religion is not friendly to this topic, but it should be. You know, my argument is that actually the early history of all of this stuff is all religious. I mean, Religion is the way this stuff has been framed for thousands of years, and it doesn't have to be framed that way. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think paranormal phenomena are essentially or necessarily religious, but historically they have been. So, if you want to know about the history of this stuff and what people have thought, you need to study religion. Mm-hmm. There's just there's no way around that. Yeah. Um, it's, so, it's the lens that provided the most uh, sharpest image as far as uh, humanity is concerned. Yeah. And again, that doesn't mean we have to accept the conclusions of the religions or the belief systems of the religions. But I think we do have to look at them for the historical data. And I also think some of this stuff is actually quite dangerous to the religious worldviews. Yes. Um, you know, so I... One of the things people um, might not know is not un- not only is paranormal phenomena rejected by kind of the scientific establishment, but it's also rejected by the religious establishment. But for different reasons, you know, the religious establishments tend to take these things as real, but then demonize, literally demonize them. You know, the, the, this is the stuff of demons and witchcraft and magic, and it's all bad. Um, mm-hmm. so that's a, that's a dismissal or that's a, a rejection 
um, of a different sort, but it's still fundamentally a rejection. Yeah, well, it doesn't fit into the catechism in the the way that uh, the the uh, people are supposed to think, and the way the power structure is in religion and how it's been traditionally used. So, if it can't be used, I guess it's demonized. Well, the basic problem is, or that's well, too simple. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the basic problem, Greg, is that particularly the history the history of monotheism has had a very difficult relationship to what we might call magic. Mm. And the basic problem is this, that people who practice magic or or sorcery or or any kind of um, ceremonial magic, the, the assumption is always that these abilities are innate to the human being. And that what these rituals are doing are accessing these innate human abilities so that these practices essentially divinize or deify the human being. Mm-hmm. Where, whereas in monotheism or the, a theistic tradition, the agency has to come from God. So not from human beings. And that's why this stuff's so explosive in a religious context because it clearly does suggest that all of these things are finally human uh, mm-hmm. and that they don't come from some external God or from some deity outside the natural order. Um, and that's a big problem. That's been a, that's been a deadly fight for thousands of years. Uh, if what you're doing and what I'm trying to help you publicize here is, uh, is brought more into the mainstream, do you think that religion and science will adjust or do you think there will be some – this is getting into the area of uh, of your newest book, The Flip, and um, what's coming soon, what you think is coming soon between religion and science and what it might look like on the other side of that, which I wanted to talk about as well. But can we survive the growing pains? And, and if we do, what does that look like? Well, we've always survived the growing pains in right. the past. But we have not had the technological ability to end all life on the planet. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we have that ability, uh, thanks to science and technology. Um, so I think, you know, if we if we put that fear aside, yeah, I think we can we can endure these growing pains. But I think there's going to be a lot of um, there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering because, what this revolution of thought involves is the letting go of whole worldviews and the building up of new worldviews. And that's never, that's seldom easy. Um, so I guess I'm optimistic, but I'm not, I don't want to be um, naive about it. Right. Um, it's, I think we underestimate the resistances that will come from religious quarters just as much as we underestimate the resistances that will come from scientific quarters. I, I, I think they're equally robust and, and, um, and firm. Yeah. It's funny though. I, I was just thinking when you're saying this um, of Thomas Kuhn and that maybe science will change as the, the oldsters die off. But yeah. religion doesn't do that because it is it is based uh, in, a, in a completely different way on tradition, and that's carried forward a lot differently than the model of science. Yeah, it's again, it's tricky. Now, 
some forms of religion do exactly what you just described. They, the problem with religion is that it's based on absolute truth claims that allegedly don't change. Mm, right. And that's, that's what you were really talking about. The, the historical truth of the matter is, is that religions do change, though, quite dramatically. They just say they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, if, a, you know, if a 21st century you know, evangelical Christian were to meet a 14th century French Catholic, they wouldn't recognize each other. Mm, that's true. Yeah, and if, and if the 14th century Catholic would have met a first century Jewish Christian, they wouldn't recognize one another, and none of them will really recognize that Jesus wasn't a Christian at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's the same in Buddhism or Hinduism or any tradition. If you look at, for example, say early early Buddhism and compare it to something like Tibetan Buddhism or Japanese Zen. There's virtually nothing in common, mm-hmm. uh, and yet, yeah, it almost historic- looks like an animistic religion, and it's not, you know, the the <laughs> the ascetic, um, um, refined thing you think of with the, these uh, the more recent forms. Yeah, and the problem with human beings is that you know we're like ants, we're like an ant colony <laughs> at the base of an oak tree, you know, and we get up in the morning and we look at the oak tree and we're like, wow, that that's always been here. It's and it's never going to change. <laughs> and of course, that's true because our lifespans are so short as ants that we'll never see that oak tree change. Mm-hmm. But of course, in the bigger picture, it's just false. It's just fundamentally false. Yeah. And and the people, the other thing that we always forget is that science is not some you know eternal presence either. It's it. it changes dramatically every couple decades and yes. you know one of one of the and big, then it takes uh, about another decade or two for it to trickle down to the uh, to, to to the mass consciousness about what science is or what they're what they're thinking or what they're doing if, if it ever, sometimes a hundred years you know people I mean, don't still understand quantum physics so Greg, i can i'll if i can go on the news tonight and it'll tell me when the sun will rise tomorrow morning and the sun doesn't fucking rise. <laughs> so, well, I mean, we 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 don't we don't catch up ever. You know? <laughs> Until something just says, you know, you can't use this anymore. You cannot even live like this anymore, and everybody else is doing it. Then, then I guess that's when it changes. Another thing you said at uh, Pacifica. And it speaks to just what you were just saying about right now. You said there's no way to change a tradition without deeply engaging the tradition. So who changes the traditions based on that criteria? I mean, this goes to the heart of, I think, the flip. Would that be heretics, scholars, amateurs, outsiders? What kind of people do that? Is it all those things? I think it's all those things, Greg. And I think we include insiders there. I mean, the truth is, is that the scientific community and the religious community are both filled with good people. Mm -hmm. And... They're also filled with people who are desperately trying to preserve the status quo, whatever it is. But there are also lots of people who want to move forward and who, for whom our present answers don't work anymore. So, I, you know, I, again, I'm essentially an optimist, and um, I, I don't know. You know, I, 
I go back to my training in the monastic seminary. The monks were profound human beings. You know, they were part of a tradition that was saying some pretty awful things, for example, about sexuality, but they themselves didn't believe that. I, I, I'm pretty sure um, they were much more humane and much more sane about things. Um, and I think that's usually the case. Um, so I, but, but I think often the change has to, it often does start from the outside because it's really hard from the inside to see what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, always. Right? Yeah. Right? That's why, you know, just like being in the humanities or being part of the academy, I am always amazed about how many of our significant intellectuals were were Jewish. And, you know, the reason I think that's the case is because Jewish intellectuals intensely knew, could see the system from outside, but they could also see it from the inside. They sort of inhabited mm, this, yeah. this, this double consciousness that right. allowed them to see things. And I think the same is true, you know, this notion of double consciousness, I'm, I'm stealing this from W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a, a black um, intellectual who was also a student of William James. And Oh, I didn't he, know that. Yeah, he used it to describe why black intellectuals see things that that others can't see because they they're not part of the system in any kind of accepted or or um you know, certainly then when Du Bois is talking but even now yeah. the, the the black intellectual sees things that the white intellectual can't see um just because on the nature that they're not they're not on the inside of the system and right. So they have to look in other places, and they find their 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 meaning and truth there. Well, or they're they they're very effective critics of the system. Oh, that too. Stand, yeah, they stand outside it. And the other thing that being inside the system does is it shuts you down. So, uh, to, again, to go back to my Catholic upbringing, mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially, the people on the inside do darn well that it was a very flamboyantly gay subculture but by virtue of being part of the system they could not speak speak about that right so the very people who know the most about the system are precisely the people who can't talk about it and so that tends to preserve the tradition you know that's what conservatism is in some ways is a is a is a desire to preserve the status quo as it is. Yes. And the, the people inside the status quo have the most invested in that. Right. But the people outside the status quo have very little invested, yeah. if anything. So I think this is why we so need alternative voices, you know, and people from the outside speaking. Uh, and by the way, this is why I love this area and why I love books like your own you know, I, I'm a professional academic, but uh, when I look at academic writing, it, it it's a bit constipated. It's, <laughs> you know, it's 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 so. I keep crazy. lamenting I didn't go in, you know, for an advanced degree in anything. But then, you know, you say things like this, and it's kind of like, well, I think a lot of these, a lot of this well, thought comes from outside, like you say, and maybe it helps. I mean, that was one of my well, questions. It, 
It does. It does. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm, I don't want to put down academic writing. I mean, there's some real beauty in learning the trade and being able to speak and write precisely. Yes. On the other hand, it does train you into orthodoxy or convention, even if that's an academic convention. Mm-hmm. And so when I read, particularly when I read books about UFOs by people who are not academics, I'm, I'm just like, wow, we would, <laughs> we, would, we would never say that. <laughs> what have you read you know, specifically that impressed you that's come from outside of it that, that has actually uh, affected the way you're, you're thinking oh. about this and, and, oh, and uh, so got much. broken through your academic. Uh... Oh, so much. Well, first of all, it started with Charles Ford. Yeah. And, and then I read John Keel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read Jacques Vallée. And none of those people are inside the academy and they all write in a way that just busts a lot of the categories. Now with someone like Keel, I mean, he makes a lot of mistakes. I mean, if, yeah. if you know if you know something about the history of these religions, there's just some embarrassing mistakes in jo- in Keel's books. On the other hand, I don't care. <laughs> oh no, we had a big discussion on this the other day on one of my lists here. It's like Keel was what did he? It was a comment about Hunter S. Thompson uh-huh. and uh, George McGovern's campaign manager from 1972 from the you know the 1972 on the campaign trail i think it was called by thompson he said thompson's account was the least accurate and most uh most true account i've read of that <laughs> i said that's john keel yeah yeah <laughs> i i i don't think keel was intentionally making mistakes i think he was a journalist by training and he just didn't know a lot of stuff and mm-hmm. But the problem is people who know the most about a tradition and don't make any mistakes often have the least to say. <laughs> so, so, uh, I, just, I just so appreciate people outside my own field writing about these things because I, they often come up with ideas that I think are really on the right trail and there's just no way someone within my discipline would ever come up with that idea. It's just not possible. Um, so, well, can you can you think of a specific maybe a couple of specific ones that made you go, "Holy crap!" That an academic never would have thought of that. That's relevant and important to you. Well, there's so many. I so for example, my favorite one of my favorite authors is Terence McKenna. Of course, <laughs> when when he gets going on things like mushrooms as aliens, and mm-hmm. you know monkeys popping uh, psilocybin mushrooms yeah, and crawling down the result, from the trees yeah <laughs> yeah i'm just like oh my gosh that that is the that is a crazy idea and it it's weirdly plausible <laughs> like yeah if nothing else it's a great model to start you know branching yeah, off so, of it's freeing so I, yeah and so i was walking around saying i'm a i'm a psychedelic mushroom monkey that's, that's, <laughs> That's what I am as a human being, and according to Mc- Terence McKenna. Right. And uh, so, again, I don't know if that's – of course, I don't know if Terence is right or not. But that idea I just found so shocking uh, and so much fun, you know. Uh, and so there's something about all of this that's uh, – it, it's playful in a way, um, I guess is another thing I'm trying to say. That's true, yeah. Um, but the play, you know, as we know, play is how people come to some fantastic ideas and discoveries. Um, it's really important. 
Um, so that's just one example. I mean, I could, mm -hmm. there's so, there's so many others. Um, oh, I've, I've seen tons of them. I mean, it just, it, the, just the, the, I used to kind of reject some of the craziness. It's like, well, that's, that's not, you know, important. That's not, uh, that's not going to get any, you know, respectability around the subject. That's like, no, the last thing that UFO and paranormal communities need is respectability. I think. Yeah. Well, you're, you know, I, I was looking through your book before this, the this this interview and your notion of the ufo as a cosmic art project i mean that's sort of in this same um vein that i think that's weirdly plausible actually <laughs> you know but it sounds totally insane to you <laughs> well it was a I, thought experiment jeff i mean really <laughs> well no art historian's going to come up with that one but uh and that's my only training so <laughs> yeah <laughs> right Oh, you know, I said, well, let's play with this for a little bit. If you want to affect somebody's thought, you don't do it by explaining something to them. That never works. What you do is you scare the crap out of them right. or you turn their worldview upside down or whatever it is. And my point was, if I was an artist that can affect people the way that a UFO sighting, a close UFO sighting affects people, I'd be the most famous artist in the world. Yeah. You know, it would and be it 10 times more uh, effective than virtual reality or movies or anything i think i think you know a related notion i think a lot of this stuff is cinematic in some ontological way hmm. that, you know even like i think a, a lot of paranormal effects are essentially special effects <laughs> never thought of it that way that's great yeah yeah so you know and if you talk if you talk to experiencers what they'll often say to you is you know, it was just like I was in a movie. And I'm yeah. like, well, that's our model. Maybe you were. Maybe you were in a movie. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's entirely possible. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of movies, you're, uh, you quoted um, Whitley Strieber. And I, I really love this quote because it's, I think it should be paid attention to by people that are into this weirdness. He said, we need to create better science fiction films. <laughs> what do you think he meant by that? What, what do you think that implies? Well, I know what he meant by that. I mean, the the you know the sort of the context of that was we were talking to Willie and we were sort of push, pushing him or asking him questions about you know kind of the absurd elements of of some of his abduction experiences and you know basically what Willie said was, look, he, I I I know perfectly well that the visionary forms of my abduction experiences, or at least some of them, were based on the bad science fiction movies I saw as a kid in the 50s. You know, I, I know that. He says, but there was something really there, and it was using these bad science fiction movies to communicate with me. And he says, so what we need to do now is make better science fiction movies. And I just thought that was just genius, because... He's breaking down this notion that there's some kind of object out there that we would all see in the same way. Exactly. And he's instead saying, no, there's a presence there that is speaking to us through our own cultural creations and our own psyches. And if we can have more sophisticated cultural creations, we'll have better abduction experiences mm -hmm. with that presence. <laughs> yep. That is really there, and, and that's essentially actually what I believe, Greg. If you, in a nutshell, that's what I think is that's what 
needs to happen um, is we need a better cultural imagination. Uh-huh. Um, so we have better better abduction and UFO encounters. So we need a hundred more um, versions of the arrival, right? I think so. I mean, you know, we, <laughs> you and I have talked about that, or we talked about it in in uh, Santa Barbara. But uh, that film just fundamentally breaks with you know what I consider the bad Cold War narratives of the earlier uh, uh, alien invasion films, and. Um, I, I think that matters. I think it really matters. I think I told you I've had two entire shows just discussing the arrival. And if you look down the, I think I showed you down the right side of the, ex, uh, sorry, excluded middle. Hello. Uh, Radio Mysterioso site. There's a little animated gif of, um, of the alien throwing one of the symbols out that just plays over and over again. Oh, I got I, you know, I never did go to that. I, cause I want that. I want that gif. Yeah, just grab it if you just look for, you know, whatever, alien language uh, arrival or something like that, uh, animated GIF, you can find a few of them. And that was my favorite one with um, Amy Adams kind of sitting there with that look of wonder on her face and then the little alien uh, circle being thrown up on the the screen. That was another thing that I really liked about that film is it said, um, you know, we're dealing here with symbols and these symbols – might not be the symbols that we're used to, but if we look at them, they, they can teach us about not only what might be communicating with us, a la Whitley Strieber, but also about ourselves and how we take form and turn it into meaning. I think that was a very deep thing, theme that was going on in there that wasn't in the original, uh, as, as far as I could remember, in the original story by Ted Chang, the um, uh, yeah. story of your life. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I love the movie, as I said, because it's, you know, it breaks with the the testosterone, <laughs> um, you know, beat them, beat the alien up um, motif that you know you get in so many of those movies. And the military's there, but it it stands back, and um, yeah, you know, it it doesn't act wisely. And what actually cracks the code is this essentially this humanist, this female linguist who basically opens herself up to communication with these these this alien presence and it the alien presence ends up activating the 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 alien language which she's gradually learning i this is something that might have escaped some of the viewers you know it, it works with what they call this warfian hypothesis yeah exactly that, that different Languages allow for different experiences and different revelations of reality, and so as this as this um, character learns this circular Zen-like language of these aliens, she herself begins to experience reality in a circular kind of precognitive way outside of time altogether. And oh, it's Eric Wargo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely an Eric Wargo uh, movie, and um, that's profound. I think you know mm-hmm. that's just so fundamentally different. Okay, just, uh, we can extrapolate off that, and I have no idea. But what do you think would be a better science fiction movie? A better cultural signpost as uh, Arrival was. Anybody listening now can go out and write this movie if if Jeff can come up with a. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't. I don't have a storyline for anybody. But what I no, just begging, ideas. Well, here's an idea. What I've been begging 
filmmakers and directors and uh, producers etc. do yeah. Yeah. is make a film about a paranormal story that's historically accurate and you tell the viewer this is what ha- this is history this isn't fiction mm-hmm. see because even in a film like arrival we're, we all can hide behind the wink <laughs> wink that we know is yeah. fiction and i want someone to make say make a film about charles fort Mm-hmm. Or make a film about Frederick Myers, or make a form a, a film about Leonora Piper, the the medium that that Myers and James was studying, or make a film about some drop your jaw paranormal phenomena that that was witnessed and actually happened, and tell the viewers that it actually happened. You know, in other words, break break the fiction, break the wall, break mm-hmm. that. That that fiction wall that we're behind, and um, I, you know, I I actually did ask some Hollywood people to do that, and they they told me they wouldn't do it, and I said why, and they, their answer was really honest. They said because we know what makes money, and we don't know if that will make any money. Yeah, well, that's what happens with um, films that break out like that. They're just somebody takes a huge gamble. Yep. Um, and that's been in Hollywood. That's been anathema for probably the last twenty or thirty years. The last time that was uh, uh, in the culture in Hollywood culture was in the nineteen seventies, I think, maybe the early eighties. But you know, the other problem, Greg, which I learned from these from these colleagues in Hollywood is is special the special effects industry, and it's it's not anything sinister or, or bad. It's just the it problem. Just is, yeah. The problem is. That CGI, the, the sort of shorthand for how they do the special effects now, is incredibly expensive. Mm. So to do a movie that involves lots of special effects, you're talking about tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes. And what that means is studios won't take risks with that much money. Mm. Yeah, but you and, know what? They wouldn't have to. Yeah, Have somebody throw something across a room or – yeah, I, I guess people need eye candy, but the thing is that, you know, a lot of these experiences have nothing to do with special effects. And I, well, I don't know, I guess you have to make ectoplasm or something like that. But uh, a lot of them seem almost mundane, but the implications are so amazing. I don't know how you can translate that to film where it's something completely mundane um, in, in encodes something that's completely amazing. You know, <laughs> that would be a tough trick. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't watch it, but I mean, look what they did with um, the J. Allen Hynek story and Project Blue Book. You know, I mean, it's turned it into just another wild television series. You know, no, oh, they had to sex it up. Yeah, um, and that's just I've I've seen people complain about this, and you've probably seen it too. UFO people and maybe paranormal people. Why don't they do it this way? And they have all these great suggestions, and it looks like something I'd love to see. But yeah. you go to a Hollywood person, they're like, yeah, you would, but 99% of the population doesn't want to see it that way. <laughs> you know, and, but the thing is, there's, there's a, you know, there's a, like you said just now, there's a, somebody has to take a chance and, and maybe lead people. Look at, like, what, this is interesting. Let's go this way. It could look if, like this and maybe that'll work. What if they did a movie on the Pascagoula abduction that was absolutely faithful to the descriptions? 
That would be expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be really, really cool. And it would blow people's mind that this actually happened in these two men's experience. Yeah, there's there's so many like that. You're right. Did you ever I've, – I've, <laughs> here's somebody I can ask. It always struck me that the uh, main – you know, those elephant skin, strange-looking things that, that floated them into the craft with those claws, they look like kachinas to me. <laughs> they do. You're right. <laughs> I've got a couple of kachinas in my doll collection that look like the Pascagoula alien. <laughs> I think you're a little too far east for kachinas, but, yeah. you know – if you're outside of space and time, it, you can probably um, shift things around a little bit. Oh, I realize it was just coming through my filter. It's just interesting to me. <laughs> well, you may be onto something there. Don't know. There's another one of those crazy ideas. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Anthropologists would never say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Greg Bishop would. Yeah. Oh. Uh. I don't. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just blindly, you know, push into the future. I think I find that a lot of people do that. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I think we all do that. I guess it's from um, Dave Metcalf, who we both know quite well. Do you think that the future holds a version of human, a vision of humans? Well, he didn't say it in this way, but I did. A vision of humans as mystics aided by technology, or technology as mysticism, sort of like, sort of like Elon Musk and the Silicon Valley people see. <laughs> So okay, so I do have a position on that, and it's 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 a pretty firm opinion. Um, and I'm sorry, David, if I misquoted you. Yeah, I think I know what David's asking. So so I think the technology. So if we're thinking about technology as AI, for example, and we think that computers are going to somehow be become conscious. Um, I think that's profoundly mistaken. Uh, and I think that's going down. I mean, I think there will, of course, be more and more sophisticated forms of AI. And we already have them now, you know, with Siri and Alexa and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we're, we're going to get to a point where the computer becomes conscious because of what I think consciousness is. Um, I think... A lot of people in the AI community probably are operating with some materialistic model of consciousness. They think that the brain is essentially a, a warm, um, computer. mushy computer yeah. and that it's producing consciousness and that therefore they can produce a different kind of silicon-based computer that can also produce consciousness. I think that's their kind of their thought process. Right. So I think their premise is absolutely false mm. i do not think the brain produces consciousness i think consciousness uh, exists before a brain ever does and that the brain is an incredibly sophisticated kind of translator or reducer or transducer of this consciousness that exists everywhere and always and that it translates it into a person much like our computers or our iphones give us our personal uh, screen, mm -hmm. but but that it's not in the computer. It's not in the brain. It's it's everywhere. And so once you flip that, that's what I call the flip, um, then something like the conscious computer dream just becomes a kind of a lark. It becomes a kind of deep mistake. <laughs> um, 
and a thought experiment that stays a thought experiment. Yeah, and so for, for going back to David's question, I think it's the former. I think, I think we will. I I hope we evolve into more and more mystically inclined human beings who know how to use technology to do certain things, but we don't become machines that have mystical experiences. I just don't think that's possible. Right. You also brought up the term, and you've been talking about this recently, I think, in talks, the, the biological gods term. Well, yeah. What do you mean by that, and who do you see it as examples of this idea, and what do you think they're doing to, to um, affect all of us? Well, you know, I'm thinking, so I'm thinking of three people. I mean, you heard the lecture. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm thinking of Whitley Strieber, uh, well, four people, mm. uh, Philip, Philip K. Dick, Whitley Strieber, Barbara Ehrenreich, and Carrie Mullis. Right. And all four of these people, first of all, they're all writers, which is interesting. Or uh, Mullis, Mullis, by the way, just passed away. Yes, a few days ago. Yeah. And, um, but all four of these people are very gifted writers and trained intellectuals. All four of them encountered a living presence or life form in the physical environment that any previous culture would have immediately described as a, an angel or a god or a demon, mm-hmm. instantly. But none of these four people did. All, all four of these individuals essentially posited some kind of cosmic life form or species that was not carbon-based but was somehow plasma-like or some, some, some kind of energy form. And so that's what I mean by a biological god. I, I mean that I mean essentially a life form in the physical environment that any previous culture would have called a god, but where now we're beginning to describe as a as a species, a highly evolved life form. And I think that's just signals the way the cultural imagination is changing. Um it's it's moving out of what these traditional religious registers and it's moving into a more biological um, register. Do you think these people are so – well, you know what? You did discuss that in a, in a, a little different form in uh, Supernatural with, with you and Whitley going back and forth about his uh, experiences, yours, and, and what, you thought, what you both thought they meant and what the implications were. Right. I mean, so the title of that book is The – supernatural three words and really what i'm talking about is the transition from the supernatural supernatural one word to supernatural two words Mm, right that single space makes all the difference in the world whereas a previous generation or culture would have instantly identified these as supernatural experiences modern people don't necessarily do that but they recognize that they're super, they're beyond our present models, but they would still insist that they're part of the natural world. So Whitley's very clear about this, and Aaron Reich ex- suspected as much, and so did Mullis. Um, you know, they all felt that this was something in the natural world, but that was just completely beyond any, any model or, or understanding we had. Mm-hmm. And Dick's, you know, Dick's experience of Vallis, 
I mean, that kind of that does take us kind of back into a, a religious register because Vallis for him was was cosmic. It wasn't just located in a particular place at a cabin, for example. Right. It it it, it, <clears throat> it exists at the end of the universe, at the end of the evolutionary trek of the whole cosmos. It's the whole. It's the mind of the whole universe, as it were, drawing us to itself. So that's. That's sort of moving out of this strictly natural register into something that's, I think, more traditionally religious. Yeah, it's almost a McKenna idea, too. Yeah, or a Tehard de Chardin, yeah. Oh, yeah. When you said a, a, um, an energy, a plasmic energy kind of thing, um, I don't see that with, with uh, Whitley stuff, although maybe well, I'm missing something. Well, it depends on which Whitley stuff. So if you read That's enough, true. He, he goes read, through many models. Yeah, he talks a lot about living plasmas. And he talks a lot about encountering plasmas in his cabin and even one of them killing his cat. Oh, that's right. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, you know, Anne, of course, died of a form of brain cancer that is traditionally linked to radiation exposure. Mm -hmm. So this whole notion of a kind of radioactive plasma is like – really really important to Whitley actually it's not it's not his only model not 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 even close but it certainly appears in his writing in a consistent way that's true i i spoke out of turn there did you um look at uh, some of the work of massimo teodorani i've had him on my show and he talks about he's a f astrophysicist and he's interested in plasmas and specifically self-organizing apparently intelligent plasmas no i don't i i don't know of his work it sounds like i i need to do that but no i i don't i don't know it oh okay yeah um and i had a show with him where we talked about it a bit it's it's a few down on there uh down down the list but yeah he it, it it's interesting you say that because i i didn't really make that connection until you started talking about the these plasmas like oh that's exactly what Massimo's interested in and i didn't get to with, with him on that level we were just sort of talking on a scientific level and not a um what is the implication for the history of of mystical experience with this and um i think he, you know he's coming at it in a way where he can say, well, look, if I can, th <laughs> here it is with the, with the mech mechanical again, if I can, f you know, sort of get into more of how these things manifest, why they manifest, um, what the, what the, uh, physical processes are within them, maybe I can have some insight as to why they affect people the way they do. Yeah. Well, that's, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. And he's, he's, I think he's done research trying to get more data on these things. But um, as, as with uh, your uh, idea about the flip and what's going on, if I have it right, uh, I think he's trying to reconcile these, the, the mystical and the scientific um, very specifically. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, by the flip I simply mean – well, I, not simply. By the flip I mean this gradual flip <laughs> it, uh, in which we cease to think that the brain produces consciousness and we – arrive at a position where consciousness actually produces the brain, that, mm -hmm. that consciousness exists outside the brain and, and pre-exists us. Um, consciousness is cosmic. It's not local and ephemeral. 
is that your idea of the fulcrum of what the flip is? Not a not a revolution in well, you know, that's a revolution in science and the humanities. But do you think it turns on that idea? Yeah, it does. And the reason it involves this, this the reason it involves the humanities. The, 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 here's the argument of the book that that you mentioned. So because most people think of mind the way the AI experts do that the brain is a kind of warm computer that is producing consciousness. What that really means is that consciousness doesn't really exist on its own. It, it depends on a brain functioning. And so when the brain ceases to function, consciousness ceases instantly. And what that means for the humanities is that we study nothing. <laughs> because all of the humanities at the end of the day study some form of mind whether it's expressed in a text or an art form or a language or, or history what we're really studying is forms of mind is subjective states of consciousness and if the materialist is correct and consciousness is simply a or not just simply is a product of brain then Again, we're studying something that's secondary, not something that's primary. And that's why I think the humanities are sidelined today is because our, of our metaphysical convictions that consciousness itself is secondary and not really real. Mm-hmm. If, on the other hand, we make the flip and conclude that consciousness is not only real, but it's the most real thing there is, then guess what? The humanities will suddenly become really, really important. Um, it'll become the study of that, of those local expressions of that cosmic form of mind or consciousness that can tell us something about consciousness or mind, tell us something real and important. And so that's, that's what the flip is, and, and that's mm. why it relates to the humanities and the sciences. As you were saying this, I thought of... Um older cultures and different cultures and how they don't have or didn't have the instruments to look into the material that we do now. And so consciousness was primary. Yeah. That, that seemed to make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, a colleague, Bron Taylor is his name. He, he wrote this beautiful book called, um, uh, dark green religion. And it's about the environmental movement and, and different, relationship different human relationship to the natural world and one of the very very depressing things that braun points out is that in the modern west and and also within the kind of i think the modern scientific view the more advanced a civilization is the more things it considers dead and the more <laughs> the, the more quote unquote primitive a civilization is the more things it considers alive. So if you look, for example, at these indigenous cultures, pretty much everything is alive. Yes. And, and they mean it. They're not being metaphorical. No. The, the rock is alive. The tree's alive. The mountain's alive. The sky. Everything is alive. And we consider those worldviews to be mistaken and silly. Whereas in the modern scientific worldview, literally everything is dead. Mm -hmm. And life or consciousness is an illusion that is produced by matter that is fundamentally dead. So everything is dead, really, in this 
this so-called advanced scientific worldview. Uh, and so that's, that's, I think, ironic, and I think it's also really troubling. And again, I think that's part of the crisis we're in. Yeah, actually, that you answered one of the questions from my friend Josh Cutchin, where he said, you know, what's your answer to the materialist worldview? That's what we've been talking about for the last half hour. Yeah. And that um, that that flip, do you think it will happen? Or it ha- well, you know it has to, but do you, okay. how do you no, see I, it happening? Or is, it, I, is there hope for that? I don't think it has to happen, Greg. And, I, and I'm not um, a naive, uh, I'm not naive about this. Um, I, I think that here there's a couple challenges. One is you can do a lot of really effective things with the materialist outlook. You know, you can yeah. make stuff. Yeah. You can you can make stuff and you can make money, and that's why it's so powerful. And for a lot of this stuff I'm talking about, you can't make any money. You can't make anything. It has no marketable value. And I think that's part of why it's dismissed, actually. Mm, yeah. Um, I also think... goes back to the movie stuff, too. <laughs> yeah. I also think... Hobbles um, the imagination. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons that we'll eventually get to the flip is because the materialist paradigm is failing spectacularly when it comes... <laughs> When it comes to the question of mind, you know, I think 20, 30 years ago, the assumption was, uh, you know, it was, oh, we're going to figure everything out about the brain and then we're going to understand what consciousness is and, you know, we can close the books on that one. And it just didn't happen. Uh, The more we learn about the brain, the more we recognize that none of it actually can even begin to explain what consciousness is. It doesn't even come close. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think we're going to hit a wall uh, if we haven't already hit that wall, um, and we're going to have to say, well, whatever consciousness is, it cannot be explained by material processes in the brain. Yeah. That 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 just that ain't going to happen, folks. And at that point, I think we we haven't quite flipped yet as a culture, but we. Um, we're setting ourselves up for one. And, um, and the other thing, Greg, though, that's really, I, this is really an important point. What I call the flip in the book, the problem with it is it's fairly rare, and these events happen to individuals whose lives are completely turned inside out and who mm-hmm. do, in fact, flip, but it doesn't happen to anybody else. So the the problem with these things is they're very... Personal. Personal and spontaneous, and you cannot replicate them. Yeah. They're not reproducible. Yeah, uh, now, like my T-shirt. Now, yeah. <laughs> Reprodu- now, reproducible but not on demand. <laughs> but there might be one exception here, and that's the psychedelic scene. Mm, yeah. Uh, but even there, we know enough about psychedelics to know that they're not exactly reproducible. And of course, it's also illegal in most cases. So we've we've criminalized altered states of consciousness uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of which is probably to preserve the kind of metaphysical system that we want to preserve. And 
uh, powerful psychedelic plants or, or substances turn that inside out. Um, so, you know, some of these flips are psychedelically induced, but not all of them. Some right. of them are just spontaneous. Some of them in, happen in accidents. Some of them just are aesthetic. Some of them, you know, they happen in all kinds of ways. Um, but I think we have to respect and honor why they don't happen, too. Hmm. And if they don't happen to <clears throat> yeah. an individual or an intellectual or a scientist, it makes perfect sense to me why that scientist or intellectual rejects what I'm calling the flip. Because there's nothing in his or her experience that connects to it. You yeah, know, that goes like, outside the academy. <laughs> yeah, it's just like I'm talking nonsense. And I get that. I understand that. I accept that. And But that's why I'm, I'm a bit skeptical when we start talk, asking if the flip's going to happen any day now. I, I seriously doubt it. Um, a slow flip, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's more like a somersault or... <laughs> or, or maybe it's a flop. You know, maybe we. <laughs> if you look, if you look at the book cover, it's got this lovely. I just love the book cover. The artist drew this a somersaulting guy, yeah, space scene with this little guy doing a flip on the cover, and I'm like, gosh, I hope he doesn't land on his head. <laughs> <laughs> It looks like he might, and he's pretty far yeah. up in the sky, too. I know, but but remember, he's in outer space, and so there is no down. Okay. So I, okay. I think he's okay. I think he's okay. <laughs> I don't know why I just thought of this. One time I saw uh, from the International Space Station that they were talking, and this was on Japanese TV, not on American TV. Um, they were talking to the Japanese uh, uh, astronaut there. And after they finished the interview for this big network in Japan, he, gave, he bowed because you're supposed to bow, right? Right. But it was in zero G, so he bowed and he went all the way over. It was the deepest <laughs> bow I've ever seen. <laughs> That's great. My wife, who is uh, going to uh, getting her doctorate from Pacifica, which allowed me to come see you talk, um, she had a question. Okay. She said, what would a theory of imagination look like? Um, uh, and did uh, Henri Corbin's imaginal realm, which connects everyday reality or the cosmic or divine, address this appropriately? And I know your your, your opinions about Corbin, but um, you know I think this has direct um, relevance to the UFO thing too. Yeah. So this <clears throat> this is a really nerdy question because she's doing because, a nerdy uh, doctorate. <laughs> yeah, not, it's not because your wife's a nerd. It's because I'm, I'm a nerd and I have a very nerdy answer. Um, so I, I've, I've often said, and I still believe this, that pretty much everything we're talking about hinges on what we think the imagination is mm. because uh, abduction accounts, UFO accounts, paranormal experiences all involve the imagination clearly. And, and so I think what we normally think of as the imagination is something like fancy or or imaginary. You know, it's just imaginary. It's like a, a dream that isn't real. It's just something we're spinning out. Mm -hmm. These damn words. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the way the imagination works in a lot of these events it is not that. Um, like, for example, I've worked – with a lot of people who have precognitive experiences that are clearly imagine, um, involve the imagination, mm -hmm. they're, they're imagining this future 
event that's taking place inside their head or, or in the, some kind of visionary space, but they're also cognizing something that is actually going to happen the next day. So the, the imagination is functioning as both a projector of some kind of movie-like experience, but it's also accurate. It's, it's actually seeing reality as it will soon be. And so we don't really have a model. I mean, we don't know how to explain that. Corbin, Henri Corbin, was this French scholar of Persian and Iranian mysticism, mostly of an Islamic nature. Mm-hmm. And he developed this model of the imagination that was, he called the mundus imaginalis, the, the imaginal world which was this middle world this between the physical world and the spiritual world mm-hmm. and and the imaginal world for him was real but it was also visionary it mediated again between matter and and spirit it's your excluded middle yeah or magonia actually yeah but here's the problem with corban so corban was a christian and that's not the problem but the problem is he had a particular Christology, he had a particular model of who Christ was, and it, w- it was what we call a form of docetism. And docetism was an ancient Christian position that basically said Christ was fully God and his humanity was, was not real. It was an appearance. It, it only se- he only seemed to be human. He was, in fact, always pure God. And the reason this is important for Corban is for Corban, God can never become human, never become truly human. Gods do not incarnate into human form. Um, God might appear to incarnate in a human Mm -hmm. form, but not really. So for... Very orthodox kind of uh, background. Well... It's actually heresy. I mean, that's actually heresy in a Christian context because... Um, right, it, right, exactly. It's traditional Islam. In Islam, you, in Islam, incarnationism is a pure heresy. God can never become a human being in Islam. Mm-hmm. But, God, but God must become a human being in Christianity once. Yeah. Okay? So, Corban's position was that actually God is, is transcendent and can never become fully human, and therefore... Therefore, Corbin needed this middle realm to mediate, to, mediate yeah. to, be, to mediate between the transcendent God and material world. Okay, so here's my question to to your wife and to the listeners: What if that's not your Christology? <laughs> what What if you think God and the world are the same thing? Then obviously you're going to have a different model of the imagination. Then the imagination becomes some kind of emanation or expression of God, and it's revelatory of God's nature, but it's also perfectly real. You don't have to separate the the world, the transcendent world of the Godhead and the material world of the physical universe. There, one is an expression or emanation of the other, and therefore you're going to develop a different kind of model of what the imagination is. The imagination is going to become a kind of emanation of some kind of divine mind. Um, 
And I think that's closer to what we actually see in a lot of these cases, that something like a UFO or something like uh, an alien abduction is experienced as completely real by the experiencer because in some sense it is real. It's an emanation of this mind that's playing out this movie right. or painting this art form. So the the symbolic vision or the encounter is in fact real, um, but is also no different than this cosmic mind. And of course it's it's not a full expression of that cosmic mind. It's 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 just one art form. It's one movie. Mm-hmm. Would you say that in that case, the imaginal world is taking place within the percipient and it's not some, it's not some external thing that mediates it's because your, your imaginal world becomes your background and your cultural background and your DNA and all that stuff. Yeah. I, I would say that the, because you're having a direct experience, but the direct experience will make no sense unless it's sent through something that makes sense to you. Yeah. Right. And that, so that middle world is, is subjective because that's your psyche and culture and background, but it's also objective because it's actually really happening in the physical world. It's, it's kind of both. And mm-hmm. but see, this is where language, this is where I start talking nonsense because this is where language breaks down. And oh, language it, sucks a lot of this stuff. Yeah. And so I don't, that's so I don't, you know, we get back to your wife's question. I, I think, how you think of the imagination is going to depend on how you think of the relationship between mind and matter or, or God and and the physical universe. It's going to, it's going to depend on a lot of things. And I think Corban's model worked for him because of his own belief system. Right. But I'm not sure it works so well if, if that's not your belief system. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, she said, "Does this address, does his I, a model address this appropriately?" And you're saying it does for people within his uh, with with his view, um, with his belief system, but not for everybody. Um, and yeah. it's probably one step away from what we're talking about, which is a direct experience of the divine or paranormal like, or whatever the hell you want to call it. Like, so let me let me give you a different example. So I have mm-hmm. a a friend named Bernardo Castrop, and Bernardo is is a robust idealist. He thinks that mind is all there really is and that the material universe is an expression and an essentially a mathematical emanation of mind. Mm. Yeah, okay? this is like John Wheeler's thing with the anthropolo- anthropological universe. Yeah, the anthropic principle. Anthropic principle, that's it, sorry. Yeah, I don't know what Bernardo would say about that, but but my point is, is that Bernard, for Bernardo, all there really is is this cosmic mind, and we are all alters in that one cosmic mind. Where you know God has a personality uh, disorder, and we're we're, <laughs> we're we're all his alters, and and we're actually we're actually inside God's brain. All we got to do is look up at the sky, and what you're actually looking at. When you look at the the sky and the stars, is essentially the neurons in God's brain, and so we're sort of inside it all, and and all everything is is an expression of this cosmic mind. Okay, well, what is the imagination there? Well, <laughs> it's literally everything. I mean, uh, and mathematics then becomes the the kind of structure of this mind imagining the universe. 
but the imagination here isn't something that's not real. Quite the quite the contrary. The the, the universe it is what is, it is. Yeah, it is. It's just it, it it's everything. Yeah. The imagination is everything. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, this gets us into you know William Blake and and back to Charles Ford, frankly, who kind of was at in this same space. You know, he looked at he looked at different species of animals and he, he thought they looked a lot like God ima- trying to imagine things and not quite, <laughs> not quite getting it right, you know. Um, so, um, so I, you know, I just, the, the imagination I think is so important and, um, and I, and I, and, and I, what I, and I don't mean by that the imaginary, I mean, what is this aspect of mind that allows itself to express itself in the physical universe and, Whatever forms it it imagines, whether those are mathematical forms or, or species or or this conversation. <laughs> uh, mathematicians say that the math is the language used to describe what we can't describe in you know in uh, in uh, cultural well, language you know in a, in a, in, a, in English or whatever language you're using. And I think it's just one more lens. Mathematicians are so are so interesting. I mean, a lot of them are just you know. Again, blatant platonists. I mean, they they think math really exists. The, the numbers really exist somewhere, and these are these kind of ideal forms, mm. and that every everything else that exists is sort of an approximation of these mathematical structures. That's right. I mean, yeah, that's ex- actually how a lot of science works too. A lot of physics works that way. Um, so there, you know, there the the number as I say in the flip, is, is, is what is a perfect symbol because it's, it's expressing some deep metaphysical structure. But of course, nobody really believes in the swiggly line that we call number two. I mean, we know that's not what two-ness is, but we also operate in science and technology like mathematics somehow gets us as close to reality as, as anything. Uh, and and how is that? Why is that? How do we how do we come up with these um, equations and numbers in our head? Just just make this shit up, <laughs> and and it ends up corresponding really closely to the physical universe. Close enough we can, you know, put a something in orbit and get it to the moon and back. I mean that's all in our head, by the way. Yeah. Well, uh, the case to be made that it's. Um... Uh, it's interacting with you know whatever it is to to uh, become what we think it is, and we're just we're, we're forming it into a way that we think will work. Um, and that the the that's the idea of the informational universe that really intrigues me is that it exists because we think about it. Um, that the, the uh, yeah. that uh, um, physicality is an epiphenomenon of consciousness interacting with information. Yeah. I don't I, that that model intrigues me right now. What do you think of that model? Well, that's in the humanities. We call that a hermeneutical model. That mm. you know the the meaning arises through the engagement. That that the text itself, in this case, the universe, the mathematical universe, has no meaning outside one's engagement with it, and that when one engages in it, the meaning that arises is much is much a function of the subject doing the interpreting as the objective nature of the text. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's an idea that's very familiar to, to a humanist. That's true. And by the way, when I say humanist, I don't mean a secular, you know, materialist. I mean, just someone who 
thinks about human beings and who works in these fields we call the humanities. Right. Yeah. When people hear humanist, I think most people think secular humanist and all that yeah. implies. Yeah. And I don't mean that. I mean, those are humanists. Yes. One more question here from my friend Robert uh, uh, Brandstetter. He wants to know how does the power of symbol help to fuel our cultures and what do you see? Um, what are the most post potent symbols of the paranormal? Well, so there's a whole chapter on symbols in the flip. And um, this is one of the crisis points in, 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 in the humanities is that we've lost the sense of the symbol. The, the symbol historically has been a sign or an image that participates in the nature of that which it symbolizes or signals. So, so um, the best example here I can give again is mathematics, that numbers are arbitrary signs that we've created in culture, but when we use them in science, the idea is that they somehow participate in physical reality to such an extent that we can use these abstract symbols in our head to do things in the physical world. Um, in terms of the paranormal, I mean, there's so many... The thing that strikes me the most, though, about the paranormal, well, two things strike me. One is how the symbols tend to rely on the development of new technologies. So, for example, you know, we had clairvoyance for years. We had this kind of clear seeing in French. But when the telegraph was invented in the second half of the 19th century, we soon had telepathy. Yeah, the model changes. The model changes, and then we had, you know, um, the radio came along, and people started talking about telepathy and ra radio wave terms, and then, of course, the computer and the internet, and now people talk about information technology. Uh, quantum physics has given us all kinds of metaphors to, to talk about the paranormal. So and I'm sure... I'm sure every time there's a new scientific or technological revolution, we'll have another set of metaphors to um, talk about the paranormal. So that's the first thing, is that the, the metaphors tend to follow the development of technology. And this, by the way, is I, why I am so damn skeptical of the computer brain model. People who say that the brain is like a computer, I just want to shake them. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, it was a clock, and then it was a this, and then it was a that. Yes. Now it's a computer, and what else is it going to be in 50? Don't you see that your metaphor is just historically relative? Don't yeah. you see that? You know, so, that, so that's the first thing. Um, the second thing, which is a little, I think, historically deeper than that, is I am so struck by how paranormal phenomena replicate or mimic language and writing hmm. <laughs> and and yeah. textuality. Yeah. I mean, this is why I called the book Authors of the Impossible, is if you look at the metaphors uh, around paranormal events, people will often say, you know, it was as if I was in a novel or it was as if I was being written or, you know, you talk about automatic writing or you go to a, a you go to a medium for a psychical reading. You know, there's all of these reading and writing metaphors that 
lead me to think that there's something essentially paranormal about language itself, about hmm. about textuality. And this, again, takes us back to the humanities, not the sciences. It's the humanities that are all about the interpretation of textuality, not, not the sciences. So I guess that's what I would say. I would say I'm deeply skeptical of the technological metaphors for the paranormal because they're always changing but i'm much more sympathetic to the semiotic or the the textual metaphors because i think they're deeper and they're probably closer to the truth um yeah but you have to listen to all these people and sort of you know i'll read um one of whitley's books or I'll read something that Betty Andreessen happened to her, or I'll read even a you know a contact ebook, and to me they're all they're all describing something through their filter. Um, yeah. That thing that you say is real that really happens to people that there really is some other consciousness, whatever you want to call it, um, self organizing principle. I don't know that um, interacts with us occasionally, and they're all looking at it and describing it through their their time, their culture, their personalities, all these things, but they're all looking at the same thing. So you have to be kind of soft about what you see from them. And I've get, I get comments from people about, um, well, this is just all intellectually uh, intellectualizing this ac- academic world, uh, using the academic world and uh, to describe something that is real. And I'm saying, well, it's all real. It's just that everybody, people that haven't had the experience need some way to get a handle on it, explain it to themselves and others as long as they don't just, just throw it completely out the window as, as BS, you know? It, well, it's a, it's a comparative problem, Greg. You know, it's, it's easy to take one person's experience and to think it's, it is what it says it is and we can shut the book. But when you take a dozen or a hundred or a thousand of those experiences and every single one of them looks different, mm-hmm. and yet there are patterns that connect them, okay, well, then you have a different view of them. Yeah. You that's know? that's and, almost, dare I say, scientific. <laughs> well, it is. It, it certainly, it's a kind of natural history. It's how Darwin worked for sure, you know, yeah. lining up a, a bunch of wings until he figured out how they were all similar and how they, yeah. how they were all different. And. <clears throat> But you don't get that by literalizing one experience as the final truth of the whole thing. Right, right. It's a soft focus. I mean, it's always, yeah. it's always going to be a soft focus, at least for me. Oh, uh, there was one other question by my friend uh, Miguel. Um, he wanted to know what you thought about Tyler in uh, Diana's book. Uh, he said, as being a representative of a technocracy that exploits UFO contact for materialistic reasons. But your research in the supernatural alludes to viewing this stuff from a more spiritual angle. Um, I think that for me, I think Tyler, one, I don't know if he's exploiting it. It's just something that happens to him. But he realizes that it's uh, it's coming from some place that is, is sacred to him. Uh, I don't know what you think about that, but that's what Miguel was asking. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I do. I, I know Diana's book really well. <clears throat> I know Diana. Yes. Um, you know, I think Tyler a, is a very complex and very rich individual, emotionally, spiritually rich. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to frame him in any kind of judgmental way like that. And, and I don't mean to say that Miguel's judging him, but 
I think it's always easy to take a person we that we really only have a piece of the puzzle of and you know frame extrapolate him. yeah yeah and I think once we take people in a and I, and I understand you can't really do that with Tyler because of the nature of the book and the, the nature of the anonymity but mm-hmm. I think my, my experience with experiencers is that. You can always frame them in simplistic terms to arrive at whatever conclusion you want. But the more you get to know them, the less plausible or convincing that becomes. And yes. the, strange, the stranger they become. The, and I mean that in a positive sense. The, the stranger and the stranger story, the, the people become stranger and more mysterious and, and deeper the more one really gets to know them. And I think that's, well, I know that's the case with, with, with Tyler. And I, I, you know, I, I try to carry that into any description of my own people I work with or my experiencers is that that's true of them as well. The, the first story they tell me is never the whole story. And the second story and the third and the fourth and the fifth and onwards, this, it just gets weirder and weirder. And, and I think that's just who we are as human beings. Mm-hmm. We're, we're extremely, we're strange to ourselves. And <laughs> I also, I, by the way, I don't think we understand, I don't think we're apparent to ourselves. I don't, I don't think any of us are transparent to ourselves. I think oh, we're no, you're probably the worst judge of yourself of, of, of anyone. Well, I know other people can't judge me because they don't know me. They don't know what's going on inside. That's but true. I don't. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so, how am I? You know, much less am I going to, you know, fe- claim to know what's going on in another person. Yeah. Well, the modality, I guess, becomes you know, listening to somebody instead of making an assumption about who they are, what they are, whatever. I, I find this too, Jeff, very definitely. And I think um, uh, Jacques Vallée says this too. When you're when you're dealing with somebody that's had a weird experience, you you can't just go in and ask a question and run away. No, you know, and say, okay, that's what happened. Once yeah. you start talking to them and you start getting to know them, every time you make an assumption, they're going to come in and just you know, if you're if you're uh, if you're listening, and if you're adaptable to whatever somebody's saying, your assumptions are going to be sliced through. Every assumption you have that's about somebody who's had a weird experience is not going to be um, completely true or it's going to be absolutely not true. And you find that just from talking to them and from getting to know them. And I think that's one thing that UFO people, you know, people that uh, study this don't do. They just want to get something in a book and move on. But once you start to know somebody, and I think there's an underground of the ufological community that knows this. Once you get to know somebody, the story gets so weird you can't put it in a book anymore. <laughs> no, that, that's actually one reason I, I'm so suspicious of questionnaires. It's like, yeah, no, that's not going to get to where at least where I want to go. I mean, that's going to get us something, but yeah, well, it's the- going to get them. It's going to get the uh, the material, but not the not the meaning, as we said earlier, or I brought up that you said earlier. And, you know, people also self-censor and, you know, a lot of you, when we're in the abduction realm, a lot of this stuff, there is a sexual element, there's a traumatic element, and those are the elements that don't come out early on in the story. They they come out if you sit with it for long enough, mm-hmm. but they generally don't come out early on. I mean, these are intimate 
often very difficult experiences for people and they they don't they they tend not to share them or they're they don't share them because they're afraid they're going to be made fun of you know? Exactly, and you know, and pretty much they are. And I've 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 described yeah. this to you, I think, and said this before. Um, and th- I'm sure this has happened to you. And it happens to me with UFO conventions. People come up to me and they start telling me what happened to them, and they don't want an explanation, no. and they don't want they don't want me to validate or anything like that. They just want to tell me without me saying anything. Yeah, because more than you- half the time they leave. They say, "Okay, thank you," and then they walk away. Yeah, they see you as some kind of. Um, authority figure, and they just they just want to be listened to. They don't they don't want to be judged, or they don't they don't need an interpretation. Yeah, sometimes they do, and I say, look, I don't have one, but this is what I might think. But please don't take my word as gospel. Year, do research and talk to other people. Year, years ago, I don't remember this person's name, uh, but a woman contacted me. I I'm, I live in Houston. Mm-hmm. And this woman was some, from the Northeast, but she was going to be in California for some kind of art show. She was an artist. And they were going to drive back to New England, wherever they lived. And, you know, Houston is actually not really on the way. And <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's not totally out of the way, but it's not on the way. And and it's Texas, so it's kind of out of the way. <laughs> Any place yeah. in Texas is out of the way. And she she wanted to know if they drove through Houston, if I would sit down with her and listen to her story. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. And so she, they drove through Houston. Her husband didn't come in. Her husband stayed in the car outside on the street. <laughs> and she sat with me. For about an hour and she told me this heartbreaking story I, I was almost in I was in tears I think and it was about their daughter who uh, she she ha- she was had a horrible problem with addiction she had some kind of addiction um, issue and she ended up ODing on something at a very young age and died mm. it was in her early 20s or mid 20s or something and um, you know when they were having the wake in the the family home people started to get phone calls on their cell phone from from her phone yeah from her phone and uh, the, the phone in the house then rang, and the dad and I think the other sister picked it up, and it was the, it was the dead daughter on the phone. They could hear her voice, and and then you know it went blank, of course. And all this, and I, I just listened to this story. I was like, oh my god, you know, because uh, you know any parent is just like totally twisted in the knots at this point, and. Um, she didn't she just wanted to tell and I said, you know, <coughs> I believe you. You know, I, I, I believe that happened. I have no idea how or why, but I, yeah, I believe Sure, it. she's gonna take a trip to Houston way out of her way to tell you a lie. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> and and that's all she wanted. And she thanked me and she got up and she left and I never saw her again. I I, I don't know her name. I, I, I couldn't tell you anything about her mm. other than that that one hour visit, you know? Yeah, well, I think that's that's part of what you're doing in a, in a greater sense. Was that very specific uh, episode? Yeah, and 
to me that's just like it's like a parable and you know i i know people hoax things and i know people make up things i i we're not stupid but i also know those things really happen to people and that woman was not lying to me and so i just i get so upset you know with people who want to dismiss it all because it's just it's it's morally wrong it's this it's deeply deeply morally wrong mm-hmm. and i you know and so those but those experiences change you i've never gotten a phone call from the dead but i know she did and i mean i can barely tell you that story without crying you know i mean it is you know is that powerful yeah and never leaves you yeah i've i've uh kind of dialed down my uh, um, participation in skeptical groups because I get to the point where they're just saying, well, you know, these people are dumb and they can't, they, you know, they don't, that's not really what's happening or they're mistaken. And I mean, at a certain point, you can't say that anymore. And that becomes far more interesting than any of the other BS about hoaxing or, um, the foliage or whatever you want to use as a quote unquote explanation. What's more interesting is what happened to these people? How does it make them feel? And how does it compare to, you know, others and, and, and others in history? And that, yeah. that, that to me, um, is why your work is important and why I'm, I feel lucky to be able to ask you these questions and talk to you because the, the meaning to me is, as we go back to that theme, the meaning is far more important than the mechanism because the mechanism as you said throughout this whole interview has really not gotten us anywhere no and there might not be a there might not be a mechanism yeah that's, that's, or it, it'll be so if there is a mechanism it's it's so inscrutable as to be just meaningless at this point no but see we assume there's a mechanism because we're materialists but yes. if materialism is, is inadequate or false, then there may not actually be a mechanism. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you, you can uh, – how much further are you going to break the atom down to be able to figure out what the hell's going on? I mean, it's just – it's still going to be doing the same thing. So – yeah. I, that's how I feel about the the breaking down the paranormal thing. Well, let's find the quarks of the paranormal. It's like mm, that's it's not, that's it's, it's actually not going to work. Yeah. Uh, the thing that actually intrigues me. One thing I won't keep you too much longer here, Jeff. But the thing, <laughs> one thing that really we could go on for hours that really intrigues me is I heard, heard an interview with Jim McLennan. Um, yeah. And uh, he and his uh, work with the what was the group? Um, I can't remember the name of the group, but it's a paranormal group in the Midwest. And after a while, he figured out that hoaxing was an incredibly intimate part of getting the paranormal stuff to work. Well, yeah, that, this is what I've off. This is and what that I pisses call, off this, both sides. <laughs> yeah, this, this is what I call the trick of the truth, you know, is that sometimes you need to mimic the thing to get it to appear. Jumpstart, yeah. Yeah, and the, of course the the, the, uh, the obvious example here is the, the placebo effect. I mean, <laughs> a, yeah. placebo, a placebo is a fucking hoax, <laughs> <laughs> and and un, and fortunately or unfortunately, it works about thirty percent of the time. Okay, mm-hmm. well, and then if you ask the researchers, well, why does it work? They're like, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, all right, that's what I thought. Yeah, so. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people have said this is why seances work. You know, the purpose of 
turning the lights down and sitting around in a circle is so nobody has to take responsibility for their own superpowers. You, know, <laughs> you, you actually don't, you know, if you, if you talk to parapsychologists, one of the first things, or not first things, one of the most interesting things they'll tell you is we have no idea who the agent is. We, we have no idea. Yeah. You know, it, it could be the person where our subject of the experiment it could be the parapsychologist it could be someone 10 blocks down the street or around the world we have no idea who the agent is yeah and um, well they're looking for the mechanism again and they're also looking yeah. for localized consciousness again yeah so so i don't know what the answer to that is except for a different form of parapsychology and at this point a different form of ufology which well, i think people are pushing towards and you know, this again, to take it back to religion, this is how religion works, is religion, if you look at religious practice, basically what it is, is mimicry. <laughs> you know, yeah. r- ritual, ritual is mimicry. You go to church, you're the mosque or the temple, and you're just pretending that the God are, is there, or, or you're eating him, or you're invoking the deity, or whatever. But, but, but the idea is, is that if you do this long enough, and with enough faith, that the deity will actually appear. So it, it's it's the same basic principle. Yeah, fake it till you make it, too. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's a truth in that that I think people don't want to look at, uh, no. especially um, people that are interested in the weird stuff I'm interested in. But, you know, so athletes understand that. Mm. Uh, uh, artists understand that. Actors understand that. I mean, there are a lot of, of human endeavors that work on the same principle. That's true. All right. I think I'd better let you go because I said two hours and I think we're at um, like two two ten or something like that right now. It's been fun, Greg. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think we should have done this a lot earlier and I'd be um, uh, excited and happy to do it again in the future. I wear your T-shirt, by the way. Did you know that? Which one? The Roddy Mysterioso shirt? Yeah, with the Pescagoula monster on it. Yeah, I think you said your daughter bought that for you. Well, she, you know, they they know every birthday and Christmas, Dad loves weird paranormal shit, and I, I my daughter, I was like, Jesse, this, give me this T-shirt. I, I know this guy, and it's a cool shirt. And so she, <laughs> she, she, she ordered it. I, I wear it around the house a lot. <laughs> you should wear it to class. <laughs> <laughs> I should. I might someday. Okay. Um, are you? You've got to be working on a book now. I mean, we'll end with this. And um, what are you working on now? And when will that be out? Well, I'm not. So I'm not working on anything immediate. I, if you, I, I don't mean to self-promote, but if you go to my website, I I talk about the. I the ask trilogy. you to self-promote. <laughs> well, I'm working on a trilogy called the Super Story, and I kind of set it out on my website. And so I'm working on the first volume now, which is called the Physics of Mystics. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's on the relationship between physics and um, essentially paranormal phenomena, and how how physics has changed our changed our metaphors and changed changed the religious imagination. Uh, and then there'll be another volume on evolutionary biology, and a and a, and a final volume on cosmology. Um, so that I'm working, I'm just working on how the sciences are really informing and changing our cultural and religious imaginations. Yeah, and hopefully humanity's people and scientists read these books and realize they should start cross-pollinating and talking to each other. Hopefully. I I mean, that's the goal. and I mean, the goals for the trilogy are quite grand. Um, (laughs) 
but that's uh, you need something grand when you get older, Greg. Otherwise, you just you know you just call it quits. <laughs> the projects get bigger and bigger and bigger, and ask bigger questions. And all of this to me is learning. I mean, I'm just looking for understanding, and if that means I have to um, meet wonderful people like you and and talk to people and do research and all that, then so and then I have to go through the the pain of writing a book. Then so be it. Well, yeah, and it's fun. You know? Yeah, and it's fun. I mean, <laughs> apart from all that, yes, it's just fun. And what the hell else is the purpose of life except to have fun? So, uh, yeah, and play. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much, Jeff. Yeah, it's been it's been great, Greg. Thank you. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. I'm just a cool boy, I need no sympathy. Because I'm easy come, easy go, little high, little low. Any way the wind blows, doesn't really matter.